Hope everybody gets outside today. It's a rare day in December where it's above 50 degrees. It's kind of beautiful out. It's Today in Ohio, the news discussion podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Leila Tassi, and Lisa Garvin. I cannot believe it's Thursday already. This week's flying by. You ready to go? Let's do this. We got stuff. We got stuff. Why is the revelation about Donald Trump testing positive for the coronavirus before his 2020 debate in Cleveland bad news for the Cleveland Clinic? Laura, Trump has now come out and said it's not true, but it was his chief of staff who's saying, yes, this happened. And we do know that all sorts of people got sick as a result of that debate. So what's the revelation and why is the clinic a little bit in the crosshairs on this one? Yeah, well, the clinics in the crosshairs because they were in charge of the safety protocols at the at the first debate between Joe Biden and President Trump, and that happened September 29th in Cleveland. And what the Mark Meadows says in his new book is that Trump tested positive three days beforehand, and that well, then he tested negative right after that, but he had a positive test and a negative test, and they his team just chose to believe the negative test was the correct one because the clinic was in charge, but they were banking on the campaigns doing the testing for the candidates. And they were responsible for that and the individuals who traveled with them. The clinic was supposed to test everybody else and then make sure that they were looking at temperature checks, hand sanitizing, social distancing, and masking for all debate guests and anyone who entered the debate hall or anywhere around that. And if you remember, I mean, that was a huge radius that was cordoned off that that we, they were expecting um, in Cleveland. But if Trump's family didn't wear masks, they decided not to. And Melania Trump was even on the dais at the end of the debate not wearing a mask. So, yeah. Um, and then three days later, three they days announced later, he had coronavirus. Exactly. So the, te- the positive test was probably quite accurate and and he waltzed all over the place in cleveland spreading the coronavirus i mean i i remember when the 11 people had it and it was conclusively shown they got it from the debate it's but weirdly none of them were in the debate hall like they were they none of them had access to the debate hall so they weren't yeah, but you in the, the de- vicinity of of trump you didn't need the debate hall, though. He was in town. I mean, you, you know, were, were you in the van with him? Were you in the car with him? I mean, it is a grotesquely irresponsible thing to do. You tested positive and then you get another negative test and you say, oh, well, I'll believe the one. This is a dangerous disease. It's killed a lot of people. And there's a new study out that shows that people who get it very seriously and recover have a way higher risk of dying in the next year. It's like triple for people under 65. So if you get really sick and go in the hospital for COVID and come out and you're under 65, you have three times the chance of dying in the in the following 12 months than people who didn't get that sick. And here's the president of the United States throwing caution to the wind, coming to Cleveland and spreading the coronavirus. I mean, there, there is no excuse. By this point in the in COVID, we all knew that it was airborne. We all knew the dangers of it. But Meadows says in his book that nothing was going to stop Trump from going out there. And you have to believe, you look at his bombastic personality, he might be saying it's not true now, but like from what we know of him, I mean, you can't he, believe a word he says. Right. So, exactly. what, you know, him claiming it's not true. Let's let's put the balance of veracity into, into right. the it, viewfinder here. And, and didn't you say he it was literally days later that he tested positive and announced that October? Yeah. October I mean, 2nd, he he announced publicly. And remember, I mean, <laughs> there was time that we thought Trump might be 
dying of COVID. Right. Like, he yeah. didn't have a mild case. So, he was so in who, the hospital. So who do you believe, Donald Trump or literally anybody else? <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I mean, I mean, you can't believe a word Trump says. He, he's been documented lying thousands of times. The truth never mattered to him. And apparently it didn't matter to most of the people well, who voted for him. And then the Cleveland Clinic. So we reached out to them and said, basically, like, do you have... What do you say about this? And they just said they stand by their 2020 um, statement, which obviously was saying that actually kind of shoved the blame onto the Commission on Presidential Debates. They're like, we were just the advisor to the Commission on Presidential Debates. But, I mean, it was in your facility. You were in charge of making sure it was safe. And what happened? What a nightmare of a presidency. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Governor Mike DeWine is not saying, but what do we think the reasons might be for the shakeup in the state agency that runs the Ohio youth prison system? We say there's not an immediate recent thing that's come up, but there has been scandal in this department. Mike DeWine's running for re-election next year. Is it possible he's trying to clean up this agency to close down an area of vulnerability in his re-election run? Yeah, the history of the uh, Department of Youth Services hasn't been a good one in the last several years, and that may be the reason for Director Ryan Guy's leaving or being asked to leave, but he's not leaving state employee. He's moving over to the Ohio Department of Public Safety as Director of Special Projects and Criminal Justice Services. But during his tenure... Uh, the uh, the jail, the, the juvenile detention center, was under federal court supervision from 2008 to 2019 during his tenure. Uh, they, they were, you know, flagged for th- using punitive uh, policies, including solitary confinement. And then there was a survey done by the Department of Justice last year that found that 15% of juveniles in our facility were coerced into sexual activity, either with each other or with staffers. That was the worst rate in the nation and two times the national average. Guys took issue with that with that report and said, well, you know, our number of cases was quite low, actually, but I guess the DOJ begged to differ on that. So his replacement will be Amy Ast. She will assume the job later this month on the 20th. She's been at the Department of Youth Services since 1996 through 2017, and she oversaw a lot of disciplinary reforms. So it sounds like she's a good fit for this new job. But yeah, I think that DeWine is maybe trying to get rid of any whiff of scandal that may come up during his uh, re-election campaign. Well, the timing's odd because all of the things you mentioned came out months ago, many months ago, and he did nothing. And all of a sudden now he does all this. And when his spokesman is asked what's going on, he just says, oh, we we change, administrations change over the years. Nothing to see here, folks. But it's clearly something to see here. But, you know, Mike DeWine has had good luck with people he puts in the position of power named Amy. So maybe this will work, right? We'll be talking about one of those in our next conversation. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Who is the big surprise name among the dozens of people who are helping Justin Bibb in the month before he takes the reins as mayor of Cleveland? And what jobs did he start advertising this week in his administration? Layla, I think we all had our eyes pop out of our head and our jaws hit the floor when we saw the one big name, but he's got a bunch of people he's bringing in. Yeah, this is so exciting. It's Amy Acton, the true hero of Ohio's early pandemic response, who became a national figure for her steadfast 
advice to, to Governor Mike DeWine that led him to take all the bold steps to require COVID precautions before really any other state was doing it. She's going to join seven other members of Justin Bibb's transition team who are assigned to the task of identifying health-related priorities that Bibb will aim to tackle in his first 100 days in office. Some of the other notables on that health committee include Akram Boutros of Metro Health and Tom Mihaljevic of the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, but they're, you know, the other categories are education, economic development, equity in action, modern city hall, neighborhoods. Well, hold on, wait, wait, hold yeah. on. Hold on. You, you just defended the university hospital system. <laughs> if you're going to mention Tom Mihaljevic and Akram Boutros, you got to mention Cliff Majarian, right? Oh, so. yeah. Okay. Well, so- <laughs> True. I don't know how I skipped over that. Yeah, I'm sorry. But um, yeah, so there are a lot of these other um, categories that, you know, the, there's going to be an operations task force. Uh, there's going to be a public safety task force. Dozens of names here. It's it's a cross section of Cleveland's nonprofit world, corporate community, public servants, union leaders, you name it. Uh, you know, check out the story. Um, but, but Bib is also soliciting applications for his top level jobs, his chief communications officer, his chief operating officer, who is currently Darnell Brown, uh, the law director, finance director, human resources director. So, you know, he says his priorities in filling these jobs include, you know, choosing a team that really reflects the city's diversity and is committed to modernizing City Hall, bringing responsive government that will bring City Hall into the 21st century. Uh, you know, only a quarter of the way through the 21st century, but, you know, I guess <laughs> it's never too late. So, uh, you know, um, but, you know, Acton, you know, Amy Acton, this it was so surprising to see her on the list. She she had considered a bid to replace retiring Senator Rob Portman, but, you know, eventually decided against that. She she said she wants to, you know, take time and consider her next chapter. But her involvement with Bibb's administration is really intriguing. Well, the the health department has been a problem for Frank Jackson. He's done some things to try and change that around of late, but it has not done a good job with pain. It hasn't done a good job with a bunch of things. So having her and all those others you mentioned giving uh, Bib advice on what he might do with his health department to make it a true service-oriented agency is pretty cool. This is smart, right? Bib bringing in bright minds, diverse minds from across the city to advise them in a bunch of areas. The question then is, one, those people all have to come to a consensus on what they think his first 100 days should do, but then he's got to pick and choose. So if he gets a big list of stuff and he picks half of it, you know, does he make the people who made these recommendations angry because he's rebuffing some of it? But if he's the mayor, he's got to show that, yes, ultimately I'm the decision maker. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, I, I'm sure that these these uh, committees are going to come up with a pile of priorities. And so it's, uh, you know, we'll be watching closely to see what he how he winnows it down. Yeah. And it's it's also will be interesting to see if he stays in communication with uh, Frank Jackson or Mike White or other, you know, or even Jane Campbell, former mayors to just talk about some of the stuff that's coming up because former chief executives may have some thoughts about obstacles to getting this stuff done or or the politics of it. But it's a great step. It's good to see. He's got less than a month. It's the second <laughs> I, of December. He starts the first of January. I, I think in some cases the uh, the former administrators were the obstacles to getting stuff done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, touche. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is the latest group to sue Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and other elected leaders over gerrymandered congressional maps? 
This is not to be confused with three lawsuits over the gerrymandered state legislative maps. Laura, I was a little surprised we only had one lawsuit as of earlier this week. No more. Now there are two. Now there are two, and we can see how many more get filed. This is the second, obviously, for the congressional maps. You mentioned the three other for the legislative maps. So it's if you're confused, you're not the only one. This is a confusing issue. Um, and Andrew Tobias is taking a look at it for the weekend to see if he can help us follow who's in what lawsuit. But this is the ACLU, the League of Women Voters, and the A. Philip Randolph Institute. And they say the new map violates the anti-gerrymandering rules, which I think we would all agree with. And they say it unduly favors a political party being the Republicans. And that's because it favors Republicans to win 12 out of Ohio's 15 congressional districts. And it specifically focuses on some urban and suburban areas that went pretty democratic compared to the rest of the state in the last election, the statewide election, and looks at Hamilton County and basically says, you know, it went for Biden and they've got three different districts there that are Republican leaning or pretty solidly Republican because of the way they draw them in with surrounding areas. This is such a serious issue and I just don't get the feeling enough people are talking about it. This is an effort by the Republicans to completely take over the state, disproportionate to how the state feels. And there are now stories about how there are people running for secretary of state positions across the land that want to basically overthrow elections if they don't go their way. We got the Supreme Court appearing ready to throw out Roe v. Wade, even though the huge majority of Americans don't want that to happen. More and more, a tiny group of people that don't represent America are putting themselves in the positions where they're making decisions for the bulk of the country. This is an example of that. This is a disaster. It's why we spend so much time talking about it, because this means we're not a democracy. If you don't have true representation, we're not a democracy. And I think one of the biggest problems out there is the death of the media. You know, you've got venture capitalists that have bought out so much of the media and neutralized it that people are not getting reporting not in cleveland in cleveland you get reporting because we're a thriving newsroom and and more thriving with each passing year but in most of the country that's not the case frightening stuff and you you the last line of defense here is the ohio supreme court and if they rule in favor of this we're we're going to have overlords dictating policy to people who don't agree. Well, I mean, we've had that happening for for how long now? I mean, how how long ago was it that we had our state of Western Reserve that we had this idea that if we broke off from the rest of the state, we could have some real representational government because the rural overlords in Columbus seem to make all the decisions for us. And I've said that before on the podcast, like, I feel like these two old white guys from Lima hijacked the entire state. But I agree. I don't understand why more people are not upset about it other than it sounds kind of wonky, right? We're talking about legislative and congressional districts where the lines are drawn. But people are not translating that into this is my vote being taken away. Like what I think doesn't matter anymore because these people, the way they've drawn the lines, make sure that my voice is not heard. I don't know, Laura. I mean, I think we've done everything we can to make this 
clear what's happening here. That this, this isn't wonky. I, this I, is. I, the... I don't. I don't disagree. But I think we're living in through such a time where you're worried about your family's health and safety. People are upset about COVID. They're not having water cooler discussions anymore. Like I honestly was talking to a friend and I was like, I don't really know what people thought about the Ohio State game because I don't go anywhere where people are just having casual conversations that I overhear. Like I just, I think us being in our homes and COVID has kind of tamped down the outrage factor. Yeah, could be the end of our democracy. You're listening to Today in Ohio. It seems another Ohio utility, besides First Energy, was using dark money to help out Larry Householder before he was arrested in the state's biggest ever bribery scheme and eventually got ousted from the Ohio House. Who was the other utility and what did it pay for, Lisa? That other utility was Columbus-based American Electric Power, or AEP, and they funded a dark money group called Empowering Ohio's Economy. That group donated half a million dollars to the Coalition for Term Limits, Incorporated. Um, if, if you remember back in 2020, there was an effort to limit the years of service in the state legislature, but there was a, a, a bill afoot to reset the current lawmakers to zero. And what that would have done is would have allowed Larry Householder to serve 12 more years in the legislature. Of course, that's not going to happen now. Um, and he raised money to remain in office to support this this group or this this uh, initiative so yeah more dark money from utilities it's kind of every time we open pandora's box we find another box with something inside and this group empowering ohio's economy also gave a million dollars to open road path not really sure what that is they say it's a social welfare group but uh jb Haddon is on the board he was an attorney who did outside consulting for aep and then also tom froley who was an aep lobbyist who is now retired so their fingerprints are kind of all over this dark money group. Well, you know, we've talked a lot about how First Energy wielded muscle and money and corruption to really enrich itself and at the abuse Ohioans at large. And it's true. All of it's true. They really were a force down in Columbus and the legislators were just completely knuckled under. But it, they're not alone. I mean, this is evidence that all of the utilities use their muscle and their money to kind of corrupt the system. I mean, to help out Larry Householders so he can be king for life, not in the best interest of Ohioans. But AEP wanted him there because he did their bidding like he did it for First Energy. We're going to be doing some more reporting looking at, at the flawed structure of how utilities are regulated because they've gotten away with murder for decades, partly because our PUCO is as corrupt as anything. It's a bad design. And even though legislators won't do it and Mike DeWine won't do it, we're going to look for a prescription for how can we bring this into order? They should not be able to corrupt the system so wantonly. Well, what, they what is be, needed to stop that? And they shouldn't be able to cover it up with dark money groups either. You know, apparently uh, AEP CEO Nick Aiken says that they've given $8.5 million to empowering Ohio's economy since 2015. Money that, you know, it's dark. We don't know about it until it comes up in some sort of audit or something. So, yeah, I mean, they're using dark money to cover their tracks. Yeah, it's a it's a it's not the blockbuster of the bribery scandal, but it's still kind of frightening that yet another utility is undermining the best interests of Ohioans. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
We've been asking people this week to fill out a survey to help us understand how you learned of us, what you like about us, what you'd like us to do more of. And I've heard that people are not understanding in some cases exactly what the wording for the survey site is. So let me say it. It's cleveland.com slash today survey. That's cleveland.com slash T-O-D-A-Y-S-U-R-B-E-Y. We'd appreciate it if you help us out and give us some of your thoughts. We're trying to make this an accommodation of what you'd like to hear. How does the agency called NOPEC get the right to unilaterally hijack natural gas accounts of hundreds of thousands of people without asking them first? Is there anything else in Ohio like this where people have to take a tedious set of steps to opt out of something before their accounts get hijacked? Laura, I have a text account where each day it's free. I send a text to so just under 900 people, I think, about stories we're working on. And when I mentioned this earlier this week, there was outrage. People are furious that, that without them doing anything, this happens. Their gas account gets placed under NOPEC. And, you know, NOPEC says, we're a nonprofit. We're doing a good thing. But it takes away choice. And you get a piece of junk mail. It's not junk mail. It looks like junk mail. And if you don't read it and send in something paying for the stamp your account gets taken away. How how does that happen? That's a very good question. And it's based on a state law that allows communities to vote on this. But yeah, I was going to serve this up to you to say, you know, like, we haven't found a lot of consumer groups to talk about this. But I agree that it is one of the only times that you could just be forced into something even without your knowledge, because you probably weren't around to vote on this. It, it could have been 20 years ago and you don't realize what's happening. But this is 490,000 people who just got a letter from NOPEC and they have until December 13th to kind of opt out of it. Not kind of, to actually opt out. And you're supposed to either mail it back or fax it in, which I'm sorry, we're in 2021. Who has a fax machine? You can call. They don't make it easy. There is no online option. Yeah, the, the, look, they make it very hard. They don't they don't provide the posted paid envelope, so you've got to actually right. spend the money to preserve your account. Imagine if AT&T did this. You're a Spectrum internet provider, you've picked Spectrum, and AT&T had the power to just send you a letter saying, hey, we're switching you to us unless you send us a note in less than two weeks. And I, I heard from a bunch of people on subtext. They did think it was junk mail. They did throw it away unopened. This is just wrong. You know, and, and the, the argument in favor is, yeah, but we're saving these people money. It doesn't matter. You just don't get to take away choice like that. And their answer that it's not permanent. You can always change it after one month of paying us. It, it doesn't make sense. Did we find out, did the cities that allow this, do they get a they piece of the They do not get, no, they get nothing. They're not, the member communities are not charged any fees. They don't get anything from NOPEC. Um, but when I when you try to Google to find out, like, have, have people been angry about this before? Is there a lot of frustration? All I keep getting is some very glossy um, FAQs from NOPEC. So it's like they they seem to have, I mean, I don't want to call it a monopoly. It's a nonprofit and they're an aggregator. They're not a company, but they they have they work with hundreds of communities and it's it's pretty common but i if you'd say hey who's your energy aggregator like the average person is like what what are you talking about this is not something that's top of mind all the time there is a way to get on a list of a do not aggregate list so nopec can never aggregate you never put you in never um send you one of those notes again 
but you have to call your gas utility right. and be put on that list. So you it's just to, extra steps. Yeah, you've got to do tedious stuff. I did hear from people that said they did send in the note and NOPEC later claimed, oh, we never received it. The whole thing stinks to the heavens. They should... They <laughs> NOPEC should... threw it out as junk mail. They did. <laughs> <laughs> they, and, and look, you, Laura, you found a story in 2008 where NOPEC told the plane dealer it was working on an online way to do this because right. that's the way the world worked even in 08. They don't do it because they don't want to make it right. easy. Their excuse to reporter Sean McDonald was that we need to have a signature on file. It needs to be a, quote, wet signature and that's why we want it to be faxed or mailed to that's, us. And the, oh, if we have what? a phone converse, yeah, that's if we have not a phone true. conversation, so then we need to record that phone conversation so we can point to it. I mean, that's no. ridiculous because you know the PUCO, you can get on the do not aggregate list forever by going to the PUCO website, which has a website. So if you can do that, you should be able to go to the NOPEC website. And look, here's the thing. They should have a portal where you do it, and then to make sure it's not fraudulent, they should have to mail you something <laughs> right. at their dime with their postage stamp saying, confirming that you have opted out of using them. But it's the whole thing. It just it, it stinks to the eye heavens. I can't believe this exists. It's depriving people of their, the basic right of, of continuing. And it does feel like everybody, the Consumers Council, the PUCO, they're all on the same side. Like, there's nobody that's saying, hey, we understand understand the perspective of the person who got what they thought was junk mail yeah it's a it's a big scam you're listening to today in ohio why did ohio governor mike dewine back down from his veto threat and sign another bill limiting his power to shut down businesses during a health pandemic lisa it's so bizarre how he is neutralizing his own ability to keep people safe but in my mind, I think he did the right thing. I mean, we're talking about House Bill uh, 215, also known as, as the Business Fairness Act. DeWine signed it yesterday. He had threatened a veto of a previous version of this bill last year because, yes, it did limit his powers as governor to declare you know, it's a public health emergency. But this bill, very short bill, only 145 words, it had bipartisan support in the House in May, and then it got a unanimous vote in the Senate last month. Uh, I just feel like it's the right thing to do. I mean, the bill allows that allowed essential businesses to stay open. I'm sorry, back that up. This was in, in response to health orders last year that allowed essential businesses to stay open, as we remember grocery stores and so on, and non-essential small businesses had to close. Well, you know, that hurt small businesses, and it gave a huge unfair advantage to large retailers who were considered essential and allowed to stay open. So I think we've learned a lot since the back pandemic about complete shutdowns of the economy and how bad that is. And I think DeWine may be thinking about that and thinking about how small business owners either went out of business or suffered mightily because they were considered non-essential. So I think it's a good thing. And yes, maybe it does kind of limit his powers, but the legislature was going to do that anyway. They were against any sort of, you know, public health orders. Look what happened to Amy Acton, as a matter of fact. Layla, do you have a thought on this? <laughs> isn't, that, isn't it a good thing that, you know, businesses should be able to stay open if they can do so safely during a pandemic instead of saying you're essential, you're non-essential? I don't know. Well, I think yeah. it is a tough decision to say which is essential and which is not. But this is just you know, clearing off all of the powers that we once had to deal with a, a crisis. In 1918, when we had the the, pan, the big pandemic, 
they came out of that and said, boy, we've got to have some way to keep people safe. And they created health boards and health orders and quarantine rules. They were all done to try and stop the spread of a virus. In this pandemic, it got politicized immediately. And look what we have. It, the thing has run wild because people stopped trying to regulate this. By, by unilaterally now saying you have no powers to do it, you don't know how to deal with the unknown. I mean, we're thinking in, in terms of the coronavirus because that's what we're dealing with now. But we have just effectively stopped the ability of our government to stop the flow of the next pandemic, whatever it is, however it spreads, completely going really, against what we learned in 1918. Right. I feel like we, we learned all these lessons and we're going backwards in 2021. And I just remember at the very, very beginning of the pandemic, there were all those like indoor gyms and trampoline parks for kids that were still open. And we didn't know exactly how this spread. We didn't know if it was through touch and surfaces. And we we're like, why are these still open? Right. And it took putting those in, in, in effect to shut places like that down. And I mean, that's how restaurants got shut down. I don't know. I, I, I agree that we should not be taking away powers for, to protect us. Yeah, but right, you... let's end on a light note. You're list... Yeah, I got to move on. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What are some of the most popular names for dogs in Cuyahoga County? <laughs> Laura, it's always fun to go through this, although they're kind of boring. I, I like... didn't think so. I mean, uh... the top 10 list was boring. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. The yeah. most popular names for dogs in Cuyahoga <laughs> County, except for the first one, Belle, which was interesting. But the story is by Bob Higgs is so great, and anybody who needs a smile should go read it. I was telling my my neighbor about the story when we were walking our dogs yesterday. And our right, dogs... Top 10. Top 10. Okay, all right. Top 10? Bella, Buddy, Charlie, Max, Daisy, Lucy, Bailey, Zoe, Lily and oh no, I lost the last one. Um, you'll have to come back tomorrow. <laughs> All right, pick 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 two or three of the anecdotal ones that were fun. Oh, biscuit, both big and small, and then a small. I forget what kind of dog, but it was named Pomfret, which was just my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine going outside to call your dog in and be called Pomfret? Come here, Pomfret. There was Game of Thrones. There were Star Wars. There was all sorts of foods. I mean, it, there was one named Brussels Sprouts, which I think is pretty cute. What's your dog's name? Rory. And your last one was named Zooey, which is a cool name too, right? Yeah, that was yeah. A, from Franny and Zooey, the Salinger book. But um, my daughter thinks she named this one, even though it's definitely after Gilmore Girls. Oh, number 10, Coco, as in Coco Chanel, Coco Pebbles, and Coco Puffs. <laughs> okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio, Wolf. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. 